On this episode of Ragcast Outdoors, we sit down with Jake Perkinson. Jake was a Knowles instructor for many years and has been able to travel all over the world. So we talk a little bit about his travels. He's also an expert climber, a novice fisherman, and a novice hunter. So we talk a little bit about all those things and how he got into the hunting and the fishing. Talk a little bit about his trip to New Zealand and doing some fishing down there in New Zealand. And we also talk about his bread shop based out of the lander. Jake is an amazing guy, and we hope that you enjoy this episode of Ragcast Outdoors. This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. I'm David Merrill, and we're back. If you've made it this far, we obviously haven't scared you away, and we're glad you're here. Yeah, so today we get the pleasure of sitting down with Mr. Jake Perkinson. How are you, Jake? Doing great. How are uh, you? Oh, good. It's good to have you in the studio. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of different things today. So Jake comes from Lander, Wyoming, which is an amazing place. If you've never been there, you're definitely missing out. Anyway. Hop, hop, skip, and a jump from the Radcast. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're what, maybe 45 minutes, an hour away, and uh, Lander's one of my favorite places to recreate because it is one of the prettiest places in the country. I mean, it's right on the edge of the Wind Rivers, and uh, so Jake, tell us a little bit about uh, your company that you've got started and, you know, kind of what you're doing with that, so. Sure. It's about, I'm um, about a year into it, and started just baking bread at home and delivering to a few friends who signed up. Um, and it's grown kind of steadily throughout the last year. And starting in January, I rented a little space and bought a bigger oven. And so that's, that's where we are now. What kind of breads are you making? I just make, uh, two kinds of sourdough right now and as well as, um, croissants and chocolate croissants. Ooh, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I think I could go for one of those. <laughs> and so how do people, you know, I mean, how do they get the bread. I mean, you, so it's a, it's called Lander Bread Share. Yep. So how do people sign up to do that? I take orders online, landerbread.com and then, uh, deliver most of them. There's an option to pick up as well. And so is that just for like the Lander zip code or? It is just for the Lander zip code right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, when you grow, let me know. Cause okay. when you start including Riverton, I think I got to get some of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Riverton zip codes are pretty big. It's you know, enormous. If, yeah. if our listeners are not local, go, go look at the size of Fremont <laughs> County and, and you'll get an idea of. Yeah. Look at 82501 alone. Just our zip code is enormous out here. Yeah. Um, 82520 is a little bit smaller. Yeah, even 82520. Sometimes I get an order that's technically within it and uh, find myself driving out of town quite a bit. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's cool. Well, uh, this episode is brought to you by Bow Spider. So we want to talk about Bow Spider a little bit. David's sitting here. He's kind of itching to go because he's got a uh, total archery challenge down in Texas. He's supposed to be driving to here in a little bit. But the roads are closed because of this wonderful thing we have called snow here in Wyoming. So Wyoming spring. We go from winter <laughs> to summer back to winter. But that's okay. Yeah, if you guys haven't heard about Bow Spider, haven't seen it, go check it out, bowspider.com. I 
had a problem. And so I developed a solution that I could carry my bow anywhere and everywhere. Yep. And it's pretty cool. They just came out with some new stuff. So um, if you haven't been to the website in a while, they do have pink receivers for the uh, bow spider. So gals, if you want to get a pink receiver, you can do that now. There's um, additional straps that you can buy for your bow spider and some really cool how-to videos on YouTube um, that are just now up and available. So if you wanted to attach it to your bino harness, to your day pack, multi-day pack, all those different things are up and out there so that you can see how to do that. And David walks you through every step. Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, bowspider.com. It's all bowspider. Just search that and you'll figure out where it's at. Yeah. So Jake, tell me, you know, where are you from? And, uh, you know, how did you end up in Lander, Wyoming? I grew up in Virginia, Central Virginia, and moved to Lander right after finishing school to work for an outdoor school there, Knowles, and have stayed since then. It's been 10 years. so That's awesome. Well, welcome to Wyoming. Um, one of the things that we had talked about beforehand is that you know part of the appeal of living in Lander is you have access to a ton of different things, whether it be fishing, climbing. So talk a little bit about what you like to do. Sure, yeah. I love cli- the climbing around Lander. It is, of all the places I've been in the world, I think it's the coolest place to go climbing. And it's also still a small town, which is just amazing. It feels so lucky to be there and like and like limestone sport climbing, especially, um, as well as the access to the big mountains and the winds. Um, so climbing, um, lots of cool mountain biking. You can drive any direction to really good fly fishing. Those, those are the big ones for me. Fishing, biking, and climbing. Skiing as well. A little bit more driving with the skiing, but mm-hmm. still awesome. Well, and you can backcountry ski right there and yeah. lander pretty much. I mean, just outside of town, as long as you know where to go, um, there are some good spots there. Um, so, you know, as far as the fishing, you know, what, what really got you into fly fishing? Because I know that's a, you know, David's an avid fly fisherman. I'm not so much, you know, I'll do it. But, um, you know, what really got you into that? Uh, my first trip into the Wind River Mountains, I was 18. I just really enjoyed it. Uh, that's when I learned. I didn't grow up doing it. Since then, it's been something I have mostly learned on my own and mostly done on my own. And that is something that's so fun for me. It's how I like to spend some time by myself. And it's just so exciting. You never know what you're going to find. You check out new places, never know what you're going to see or not see. Or mm-hmm. yeah. Well, Jake, for me, I, I mean, I do both types of fishing, but the the purist in me likes the pursuit, you know, the challenge of, of just the dry fly fishing. Right. And uh-huh. it's, if, if I'm wet fly fishing, I'm just as prone to do some spinner fishing or, or worm fishing. I'm, I'm not, I'm not above putting some power bait on a hook and right. going fishing. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with that, especially when you got young kids and you want to get some totally. fish caught. Yeah. But you know, those high mountain lakes, like you're talking about, especially if you're backpacking in, if you guys have never had the opportunity to wake up, you know, while the lake's still calm, a little mist rising, maybe you got a loon or something, and you get out there while everybody else in camp is still sleeping, and you get to land that fly right on the, just kiss the surface of the water, make a few ripples, and then a fish come up and take yeah. it. I, it doesn't get much better than that for me. Yeah, those deep lakes, when they're really calm, I don't think there's anything better than being able to get on a boulder or a cliff and be able to see down through mm-hmm. the crystal clear water and just be able to see the fish rising from a mile away. And that's one of the coolest things to see, I think. So, you know, if somebody wanted to get into that, 
a couple quick things they might want to take, think about, you know, you were a Knowles instructor. So what, what are just a few things if somebody wanted from back East to come out here to the Rockies and do a, an overnight trip onto a lake, what are a few things they need to think about? Well, I can talk about the wind rivers. The fishing in the lakes is pretty friendly, pretty easy. So you don't need to be real specific with your fly pattern and they're hungry fish. Yeah. Very. And not a lot of pressure. And so they need to get a license and they need to be comfortable with backpacking. And other than that, they should just go try. It's hard to hard to mess up. It's so fun. And you don't need the really expensive fly rod either. I mean, you nope. can get just a real basic setup and even uh, just a basic spinning rod setup. I mean, anything like that, and you can you can get it done pretty easy. Absolutely. I've found smaller flies are, are the ticket. Yeah. And like for me, that this past year, we did a multi-day trip up there. And I mean, we caught... <laughs> I don't even know how many grayling and brook trout. And I mean, the Prince nymph, a beadheaded nymph. I mean, that thing was dynamite. And yeah. it is pretty much anywhere you go in Wyoming. But yeah, I mean, we caught a lot of those fish. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So who got you into fishing? Well, I learned on, so I took a Knowles course as a student. And that's when I learned how to, how to set up the rod, how to tie on the fly. And then slowly living in Lander, I would just go on my own and, uh, and there's a couple people around town who I'd ask questions to, but I mostly just go on my own. So, just go out there and try it out. Yeah, lots of lots of error in the tr- in the trial <laughs> days. Lots of getting skunked, but lots but of super broken fun. flies on back casts. Sure, yeah, everything. That's the worst. Um, <laughs> w- one person who was super generous with his advice uh, is George Hunker in Lander, uh, mm-hmm. who is quite a amazing fly fisherman and he's uh, world known for his golden trout exploits and last summer i just called him up and said hey i want to i've got a weekend and i want to go somewhere new in the winds what do you recommend and and he was not knowing what i'd get and he was just super generous with some specific advice and it was amazing weekend yeah that's cool and there's so many spots you know like last year we did the leg lake thing and so we fished our way up to leg lake and then back out and i mean you can go to so many different places on different drainages too because you got the roaring fork the atlantic and you know silas creek and all these different places and so there's just so many places you can catch fish yep and if you go up high there are lakes in the winds that aren't on the map and there's tiny lakes with huge fish so there's just no end to the exploring yeah and like up to, you know, 11,000 feet. Totally. I mean, there's... <laughs> and you go up to 11,000 feet, you expect you're going to find some, like, smaller fish because, you know, there's no bugs up there, but they're huge sometimes. Yeah, there were some grayling caught up around that almost 11,000 foot mark, you know, on this trip that I went on last year. And it was like, wow, those are some really nice grayling up at this height. Like, yeah. you, you wouldn't expect that. Totally. So that, that leads me to a thought is, you know, you just... You spurred the thought of, you know, exploring and no end. Well, I mean, that's all due to the public lands that we have, right? And mm-hmm. we're very fortunate in this state that we have more public than private by a lion's oh. share. But, you know, we do have this competing interests, right, between the bait fishermen, the fly fishermen, between the archery hunters and the rifle hunters, between the guys doing non-consumptive, you know, photography or just backpacking or hiking and the guys that are doing 
beetle kill removal or, you know, the rock hound guys, everybody's got their thing or rock climber, right? So the one thing I want to see across all these sports and all these hobbies is maybe a little more collaboration, a little bit more cooperation. Cause I just, I like to, I don't want to hear the negativity of, well, that guy's in my spot doing X and I want to be here doing Y. And it's like, well, it's public land, right? So what's your opinion of, you know, cause you're kind of in a couple different of these sure. hobbies that have, I wouldn't say super competing interest, but at least competing utilization of our public lands. Yeah. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that there's so much space. So I, I rarely actually find myself in any sort of like, Oh, I wish, I wish this guy wasn't here. Uh, and, and then when you do run into other users, I've never had a bad experience. I, in my experience, most people are super friendly, super civil and interested in each other's different passions. So, um, the closest thing I can think of is some skiers and snowmobilers on Togedy Pass that t- like to talk about each other as if the the use is competitive or a shortage of scarcity of space. But I, I haven't found that to be true. I've had amazing encounters with every snowmobile I've ever run into when I was skiing and gone a few times and enjoyed it. And And if I wanted to get away skiing, there's always somewhere to go, so... Yep. And I think, you know, snowmobiling gets a bad rap, honestly. I mean, it's, it's, it's no different than driving down the highway. It's just, you know, as long as there's the snow and you yeah. know, doing what you're doing and it's people are responsible, it's fine. It's really fun too. Yeah. A lot of people really enjoy it. I haven't really gotten into it because if I'm going out, I'm typically going to go fishing. That's just what I like to do. But I mean, there are a lot of people that love it and I think that's great. And I think that they should be able to enjoy that. And um, but to David's point, I think, yeah, if, if we had more people collaborating, you know, cause sometimes you get the hunters and the fishers that are like, I don't want anybody else out here because this is what I want to do. And I want it to be a certain way, but then you also sometimes have the climbers or the, you know, hikers or whatever that are like, man, those hunters and fishers, they're bad people. Cause you know, they're, they're killing animals or they're doing this or doing that. And so I do, you know, I'm with David. I want to see more collaboration because if we don't work together on this, then, you know, the, the conservation dollars go down and, you know, there's less people recreating and we need more people recreating because that's what keeps conservation funded for our big game, for our fish, for all those things so that we actually have them available. Cause I don't want to see a day where my kids can't go fishing. That would be really, really bad. And I know David wants his kids to be able to hunt. So um, we have to work together on that. Yeah. And the cool thing with, you know, the, the hunting portion and even the fishing portion is if those ecosystems for those top predator fish or for those, you know, big ungulates or the big predators, if those ecosystems are healthy enough to maintain and support those big, large, you know, creatures, everything else benefits all the way down to mice and squirrels and snakes and birds. Right. Yeah. And so we don't need to be out there saying, well, we got to protect the sparrow as long as we're, you know, conserving these habitats and making them function for elk. I mean, you look at right now, a, a big issue we have out West is beetle kill. We're not removing it, you know, and we're not even maintaining the trails to the level that we were in the seventies and eighties, right? Our forest service, I, I think they're, the the people that are in there are trying to do a good job, but for whatever reason, you know, there's some things that have changed with our forest management as far as healthy forests. I mean, we have unhealthy forests. Yeah. <laughs> the big fires are kind of 
showing that more and more that things need to be cleared. But um, I do got to talk about another sponsor here real quick, but we were talking about fishing. So I want to talk about our other sponsor, PK Lures. They, um, they make some really good stuff for you. Um, And it is that time of year for me where I'm gearing up for walleye fishing, which is very, very important to me. (laughs) And so, so if you're out there listening and you haven't got one of these in tackle box, at least go get one. Yep. Say, hey, on a on an off day, I'm going to give this a try because you'll no longer have an off day out there fishing. Yeah, so I'm going to give you a little starter kit. So if you're going to go walleye fishing this spring and this summer, definitely put a PK spinajig or two in your box. Um, those are very effective for walleye. Also the new PK rattler and also the next generation Ridgeline crankbait. So definitely get get a few of those, stick them in your tackle box. You can fish those from shore. You can fish them from a boat. Um, so go to pklure.com, check them out, and definitely tell them that Radcast Outdoor sent you. So again, pklure.com. So I want to shift just a tad bit here. So Knowles is a big part of your life, and it's a big part of our area because, I mean, there's a ton of people that I know that were Knowles instructors that mm-hmm. are you know that are living in Lander or Riverton. You just have to drive off the main street just a little bit in Lander, right and you'll there. figure out Knowles is a big presence. Yeah, so tell me about that experience and some of the cool places you've been. Yeah, so it's such a fun job to have, and for me it was 10 years starting when I was 22, uh, 21 actually, and... I got to go all over. Um, I was so lucky. I, I spent some seasons down in Chile and Patagonia, um, India, New Zealand, and around the, the Western U.S. as well. So it it's such a fun way to travel as well because you have a, a community that is local when you show up that can show you around and get to see different environments and different cultures and super fun. I'm really jealous. Because some of those places you've listed off are places I haven't been yet. <laughs> so we were talking earlier about New Zealand. Tell tell everybody a little bit about that and getting to go fishing there. Sure, yeah. I had a month off in between some contracts in New Zealand right when I was uh, learning to fly fish. And so I spent some time just driving around the South Island uh, trying to figure it out, which now, now with some perspective I know was some of the best uh, trophy trout fishing in the world and kind of a funny place to be bumbling around like trying to teach myself, but was a beautiful spot and and fun experience and not much catching uh, that month, but uh, lots of getting really excited. And you saw some bruisers, I'm sure. Oh yeah, plenty plenty that were right there and not scared of me, but also not interested. <laughs> Throw it in front of them and they just look at it like, no, that's, I've seen that before. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. We did a backpack trip two seasons ago now into a lake and I, uh, usually the outlet's pretty good, right? But went up to fish the lake, caught a few fingerlings, but went up to the inlet and there was a deep, deep channel. This was early spring. Ice had just come off or maybe there was a little bit left and there was a, about a six foot deep hole Right in the inlet stream was maybe a foot deep, but there was this hole about 200 yards up from the lake, and there was just a huge fish. And I threw every fly that I had with me, and he just never even once even looked like he was going to commit to it. That was pretty frustrating. Yeah, yeah, you run into that in the the inlets and outlets sometimes in the winds. I I remember being up there uh, teaching a Knowles course a couple summers ago. 
with some with two good friends, which made the experience that much more fun. But there's a time at the end of the Knowles course where you send the students off on their own. The instructors are kind of on their own also for the last three, four, five days, which is which is great. And we were kind of low on food and gave gave the food to the students and so had to do some more high stakes fishing. And there's often <laughs> these big fish that are so deep that it's really hard to to get any even with weight on the fly down to them. Uh, but I was trying my best. So this, I remember this fish um, that was probably 12, 15 feet deep in this just crystal clear, crazy channel with all the water swirling around, like no way to drift a fly right to it. But I just over and over, uh, you pay a little bit more attention when you're hungry, I guess, but over <laughs> and over would just try to put this small nymph in the right place that it would get swirled down to it and eventually uh, caught the fish, which was a big highlight of the trip. That's all we ate that day. So, Yeah, that's uh, some good eating right there. Yeah. Especially when you're really hungry. Yeah. <laughs> so Did, no matter what I'm doing when I'm out in the field, it, it could be photography, it could be duck hunting, I, I don't care, right? And if, if I run across a grouse, as long as it's season, we could be in the middle of a high-stakes elk hunt, <laughs> We're putting a grouse in the backpack for dinner. <laughs> grouse are delicious. So you talked about Patagonia in Chile. Uh-huh. So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, did you get a chance to do any fishing while you were there? And uh, what was that experience like? I did just a little bit of fishing. Uh, it was mostly mountaineering. Um, and so we were kind of above the elevation where there was any open water um, most of the time, but maybe right at the start or the end of the expeditions, there's some fishing opportunities and uh, caught a few fish. Didn't do any of the like destination, like sea run brown trout fishing or anything, um, but would love to go back and explore that just fishing, not not as much climbing. Have you ever heard of Steve Ryan? Mm -mm. He does some stuff for in fishermen and he goes down there every season for those huge browns and some of those big rainbows that do that run. And I mean, they are enormous <laughs> and I'm always kind of like, oh, I really wish I could go do that today, you know, cause I mean, they're just enormous fish, but that's a gorgeous region. I mean, just probably some of the most picturesque places you've been is probably one of Patagonia has got to be up there. It's definitely up there. And it's what I imagine this place the, or the mountains here might've felt like, a hundred years ago or something where you've got blank spots on the map and you know, feels a little bit more like the actual frontier sometimes where you just don't know where you're, where you're headed into. And that's exciting. Yeah. And so what was the wildlife like there? I mean, I, I do, I, I do have this show that I like to watch. Have you seen the show alone? I haven't seen it. No. Okay. Well, they have a season in Patagonia, so it was kind of interesting to watch, but yeah. What kind of wildlife did you see while you were down there? Well, Lots of cool birds. There's not as many large mammals. There's a deer, the Waymule, that w- was kind of rare to see, but mm-hmm. we saw a couple. Um, I heard there's wild boar too, which is interesting. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't see any. Uh, and so, yeah, birds, uh, condors are cool, um, and fish, and yeah, that's that's about it. That how, I can how was the locals and just kind of the reception to? I mean, how was traveling around? Uh, amazing. I mean, it, there's a lot in common, uh, with the ranching community here and the Poblador community there. People are super excited to see you. Very welcoming. The Asado is the same as our 
barbecue and well some differences but it it's amazing that's definitely a, a highlight they always offer you wine which you're not supposed to drink on the nose course so right <laughs> but i bet you that that beef was pretty darn good i know when i went to costa rica they were very proud of their beef and it was good but they're definitely big into that yeah it's amazing uh, and pretty cheap to buy here of course will get a little bit of spending money and if you happen upon some ranch that's going to sell you some meat it's it's great of course and they appreciate it. it yeah for sure yeah definitely so I want to get back into the climbing just a little bit because sure. one of the things about our show is we do talk hunting and fishing, but everything else in between, right? So I want to hear more about climbing because I'm not a climber at all. I mean, okay. I am as novice as novice gets with climbing. Uh, but I have read in different articles about Lander being one of the top climbing destinations right there in Sinks Canyon anywhere in the world. I mean, it's it's some of the best climbing there is. So tell us a little bit more about that and kind of what people... Like if they wanted to get into climbing, what would they need? What would they want to do? Sure. Well, Lander is has got great access to a specific kind of climbing, which is really fun. Uh, sport climbing, it's often pretty steep and pretty uh, safe to fall. And so the focus of sport climbing is to try to do the most difficult moves you can in a relatively non-stressful environment which is different than other kinds of climbing, which there are a bunch of different other kinds. So the sport climbing has the bolts in the wall already that you can clip your quick draw to and your rope. So the act of doing the protection as you go is just a little bit easier uh, and is just kind of the background to the actual movement where uh, different types of climbing, snow, ice, uh, uh, or granite crack climbing in the mountains uh, has a little bit more of a production with the logistics uh, of it. But it's all, it's all good and fun. So like Vita Vu down by Laramie, is that more of like crack climbing? Yep. Is that what that is? Yeah, that's got more of a reputation for kind of brutal uh, crack climbing that's hard on your body, uh, specifically because the, the cracks are wider, so they're, they can be awkward, and the, the rock is grainy and sharp and can cut you up. Granite, yeah. yeah. That's very hard on the hands. For sure. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So if someone wanted to start, like what kind of equipment would they need? Who would they want to talk to, to, to get into the sport? So in the summer, the Lander hosts the Climbers Festival, which could be a fun event to come to. And the Wyo Climbers organization could be a good organization to get in touch with. But you really, probably the most important thing is to have a, a friend or mentor that you trust or to take some sort of class uh, or hire a guide it's nice to just start with uh, a minimum of stress about like are we doing this right Um, so as far as equipment you need a rope uh, you need quick draws you need shoes and a harness Uh, a helmet would be good and that's it cool i've done rappelling but that's a lot different because it's just basically a lot of fun. You that's controlled falling, the, Patrick. Yeah, you hike up to the top and you bounce off the rocks and kind of go wee all, yeah. all the way down. Yeah, but similar so equipment. A, little a lot of the yeah. same skills though, same yep. equipment, same harnesses, ropes, those totally. kind of things. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I've always kind of wanted to look into it a little bit. I mean, it it looks a little stressful to me but yeah um <laughs> well maybe the crossover is some of those some of that mountain goat hunting where you need a, a mix of <laughs> technical skills winter camping and hunting all, all together yeah that's where david would come in that's that's more david's thing than mine 
Yeah, I, I would have had to twist your arm to come. I I did sign up to go do the goat hunt that they had up there in the Tetons, and I was looking forward to it. It was, it was going to be fun. But one of my thoughts when you were talking was if somebody really wanted to get started, most of these towns have a, a, a rock wall or a climbing wall, and, and that's where a lot of these guys that are into climbing kind of hang out when they're not out side right definitely yeah so that's a good good place to meet a partner or just practice just get on a wall and see is this something i want to go do it right. at 500 feet instead and of 50 elemental has a climbing wall correct yeah they've got a great uh, little training bouldering wall and lots of friendly knowledgeable people who and steve bechtel the guidebook author uh owns the gym and yeah, it's a great place to go. So Elemental is a gym and lander. So if you are in this area and you're listening to this, that's a good place to start, at least to get an idea of, of what you want to do. So yeah. very cool. Well, it's time to talk about our next sponsor. Um, High Mountain Seasonings is near and dear to David and I's heart because we do like to consume the things that we catch and that we hunt and procure in the field. So High Mountain Seasonings is your, your top place if you want to get seasoning, jerky kits, anything like that. You can start from the beginner, like we talked about, just get a shaker for your hamburger. You can go all the way to processing your own bacon, your own sausage, everything you need to do that there is at High Mountain Seasoning. The other day I I got some buffalo burger that a buddy of mine in Cheyenne gave me and I got out the the hickory burger seasoning and put some of that on there and grilled those up for the kids and for my wife and I. Those things were so good. Really, really good. So you can go to highmountainjerky.com. It's H-I-M-T-N jerky.com to get that stuff. So um, support them. They are a Riverton company as well. So that's near and dear to David Nye's heart as well. So, but yeah, so being a Knowles instructor, you got to travel. Um, Knowles is, is known for, I mean, just some of the best and most epic trips that you could ever do and some of the experiences, but a big part of that is also teaching leadership, conservation, those kind of things. So can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you did teach people, um, while you were on these expeditions? Sure. I kind of gravitated towards the trips that had either from the environment or the route, kind of the most objective, uh, challenge because in my experience that brought people together the most and so most of the learning in my opinion comes from the living in a small group as a student and just dealing with the cooking with the living in the tent with the weather uh, with your peers and then probably the instructor's most important job is just to be a role model about how to do that well how to be kind and respect other people when it's bad weather or tired or lack of food or, or whatever it is. So yeah, it's a, it's a fun job because the environment does a lot of the teaching. If you just kind of create the right environment for it to happen. Right. So what is one of the, if you could tell a story about the craziest situation you were ever in on one of your expeditions, what would it be? Hmm. Hard to pick. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Not a lot of like uh, epic mishaps or, or anything, some like really, really fun and, and hard times sometimes. Um, maybe down in, in Patagonia, um, getting the re-ration of food can sometimes be unpredictable with the weather. Uh, often it's brought to you by people on horseback. If they can't cross a river, uh, they're not going to show up. Uh, and so maybe dealing with some of that uncertainty and, and being out of food is is up there. Uh, and people do fine and it always shows up. So that sort of experience I think is more powerful than any of the 
classroom curriculum, which is great too. But yeah, that's what comes to mind. One of the things that I, watching that show alone has kind of shown me is just how fragile we are. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we, we don't think about it in everyday life because we have a fridge, we have a house, we have, you know, heat and we have all these things, but really we're pretty fragile. You stick us out in the middle of the mountains you know, it's, it's, it can be a dire situation pretty fast. And you see these people trying to survive off the land and actually how hard that is just because getting enough protein, getting enough calories is extremely difficult. So, you know, on those trips, did you guys do fishing? Did you do, you know, like find things that you could eat like vegetation, those kind of things? Definitely. Yeah. That's one of the most fun parts of the trips in the wind rivers is the amount of stuff that you can eat. Uh, and you can pack a little bit lighter on the front end and you can count on eating some fish and finding some forage. So that's another fun story that I remember with a couple of friends happening across. There's these legends that there are canoes and boats like stashed deep in the wilderness in the wind rivers, which some of them, some of them are true, I guess. We happened to cross one and being pretty low on food, just really enjoyed using it and and fishing out in the middle of the lake instead of standing on the side and mm-hmm. catching enough to eat. And definitely, yeah, it's it's also really fun to teach people. It's it's so easy to catch fish that you can teach a beginner, and they then they catch and clean and cook a fish on that same day, and uh, and that's great. What are some things that you'd forage out there? There's a lot of, like, good salad greens, like bluebells is one of the easiest things to recognize and kind of tastes like spinach uh, and is a nice garnish to add to whatever you're cooking out there. Uh, there's a bunch of berries as well and more stuff that people are more knowledgeable than me know all about identifying mushrooms. I can identify a couple that are really nice, but mm-hmm. I'm a little more conservative with when I'm not sure there. <laughs> Definitely go with someone who knows about mushrooms before you start diving into yeah. mushrooms. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Well, I mean, touching back on you, you said you've been resupplied horseback, right? I did have one encounter that wasn't so positive in the winds and I was taking a a group of young men in for it was that same trip as that fish we went for a a two-night trip and we went horseback so the kids all hiked in but we hauled the camp in horseback and you know in the up there and on several of those you have to be permitted to be with stock on the lake so we had got our permit we were legit but we are now permitted to be at that campsite at that lake right well when we pull in there was two other tents there and they were very upset that we set our horses and set 12 kids in the midst of you know their camp and you know after a after a little bit of a a disagreement i had to explain to them that you know this is where we were permitted to be this was the only place we could be we had the logistics and they were you know just weekend hikers up there enjoying they very easily could move their tent and did move about 400 yards the other side of the lake where they could be, right? But there was only one spot that was on that lake was a registered campsite mm. that you could camp with livestock or with horses. So that's that's that competing interest, right? And the thing I'd say as a horse guy, and I know Patrick's not, he would love to be, but he can't Too be, allergic. <laughs> is all those trails were cut and made by explorers exploring horseback, right? Now... The climbers get to utilize them. The fly fishermen get to utilize them. The weekend backpackers, the elk hunters, everybody gets to utilize it. But it was really the explorers. And and some of those were following either Native American trails or just game trails, figuring out where they're coming and going. So, you know, I'm, 
I'm a big proponent of more trails. I like trails. I like to explore, right? I don't want to just keep seeing this beetle kill ruin trails and we get down to where there's only one trail in and out. And then, yeah, I do a whole bunch of off trail stuff, right? When I'm archery elk hunting, but I utilize those trails quite a bit with my horses and it's pretty nice. So that that's my little piece of, you know, that conservation. We have everybody up there trying to use it. And the other one I'd say is as a horse guy, you know, when you got your car, I don't care if it's a, a pickup or a, a motorcycle. There's a couple of facilities at those trailheads for livestock. Don't block them. Don't, don't yeah. utilize them. Park, park another, you know, cause when I've got a gooseneck horse trail and I'm trying to turn around there and your car's parked in the middle of the way, that's that, that gets me red under the collar pretty quick. I bet. Yeah. It's a lot of it's just being a good citizen out there. I mean, the, and remembering that everybody's out there to have fun and to enjoy themselves and have an epic experience. I mean, that's why we go. Yeah, it it confuses me when different users act like they're so different and want to have a disagreement, you know, way back in the mountains when they have so much more in common than uh, <laughs> compared to someone who doesn't care about the mountains at all. And, you know, it should just be exciting and fun to run in and, and learn about each other. And so I don't know. Yeah, it's a different world sometimes, but... I do want to get into something else. You mentioned to me that you want to go hunting and you're in the process of getting ready for a hunting season and being able to go elk hunting. So I wanted to just kind of see what was the motivation behind uh, wanting to elk hunt. Sure. Yeah. I, well, want to, I want to eat elk meat. Uh, I want, we bought a quarter of a cow from a friend this past fall and having that in the freezer instead of going to the grocery store has been awesome. Um, and I also think it'll be really, really fun. I think it suits the things that I like to do. I like to spend time walking around, trying to notice things, trying to pay attention and just spend time out there. So I also, the little bit that I've gone along to help other people, it is different than a lot of the other outdoor activities that I do in that you go climbing, you have like a distinct objective to the point where you're kind of feel like you're on a timetable. You want to be efficient. You still have an objective hunting, but you're not in a hurry as much. Uh, and so it's a different way to interact with the environment. I imagine, uh, you're not, yeah, it's, it's fine to sit in the same place and, and look around and notice what's going on and walk slowly around and uh, I imagine that's what I imagine it mm-hmm. to be like. And so Jake, so I'm, I'm excited a little for that. envious and, and jealous. Cause you know, that, that first, the allure of the first, you know, anything like going to Patagonia or going fishing Brown or going to Alaska, the, the allure of going and doing it. I mean, and elk hunting's that's, that's my, my bread and butter to no, no pun intended, but, <laughs> uh, you know, that first trip there, there's, there's something magical about the, the, the pure pursuit of trying to get that first animal on the ground. Right. And there's a lot of, a lot of legwork that's got to be done and just a lot of learning. And, you know, even as a seasoned elk hunter, I go out in the woods and I still learn something new every time mother nature has something to offer, you know, if you're paying attention. Yeah. So what do you all have to, to tell the new elk hunter? I'll take some notes. (laughs) Start Um, with the expert over here. You know, (laughs) uh, the, the first one is binoculars. You, you can't harvest what you can't see by the best optics you can afford. 
and save up and buy betters later. Right. But, and then you can't, you can't harvest what you can't hike to. So the best boots and good boots and don't buy a brand new pair of boots the week before and go, Oh, I'm going to upgrade as, my boots. As you well know. Right. <laughs> so you can't get to it if you can't hike to it and you can't hike to it if you can't see it. That's the first two things. And then you, you need to be proficient with whatever weapon you choose. I don't care if it's a pickup truck, an atom bomb or a hand grenade, you need to have practiced with it. Right. And know your distance, be proficient. Um, I would, I would start with a four inch group and work down to a two inch group and, and that's kind of wherever your group is at that size, that's your max harvest distance. And if you in the field can hold yourself to that, right? Because you're going to bust elk at a thousand yards, you're going to bust elk at five yards. But if you can, you know, f- keep hunting until you get that animal in a calm situation where it's not running, it's not spooked, where you have time, right? You can, as a bow hunter, I can work in and sometimes I can sit in amongst them for a half hour and be feet away from some and they don't know I'm there. Right. So there will be another opportunity tomorrow. If you rush a shot today, you're going to spend the next two days looking for that animal and wasting the next two days that you could be successful. Right. But having that reservation is hard when you first start saying, Hey, I I can only shoot X yardage and these are just beyond that. Let's either move closer or wait or have to find a new group. Right. Yeah. The so. other thing too is, you know, it's, it's kind of like climbing. You talked about go find somebody that has done it and knows what they're doing. I think hunting is a very similar thing. Like if you've never field dressed an animal, the other thing, cause a lot of people think about the hunt part. As soon as you have that animal down, then it's work part. And then you have to understand what to cut, what not to cut, how to cut it. Um, be prepared with rope game bags, things to hang your meat. If you need to, to start packing it out. Like if you plan to pack it out on your back, um, also just the logistics of, of where you're going to set up camp, understanding where the water holes are, where the feed is. David has some podcasts that we've done in the past on that. So definitely listen to that. Um, but it I took think- me 10 years to harvest my first bull elk with a bow. Right. And I, there's guys that have done it a lot faster. I started in the late nineties and there wasn't as much information out there as there is now. So there's, there's a plethora of resources for somebody wanting to get started but i i mean the last two podcasts we did are are a decent place um the one that we talked with jess johnson comes to mind but start with a rifle hunt i really she kind of got thrown into a bow hunt and there's nothing wrong with that but you know get one under your belt get one in the freezer you know definitely have that contingency plan of hey i've just shot a a large animal you might be in bear country you know there's and we talk about some more of that on some of those other episodes but you know like patrick said i think a mentor is is a great place to start but if if you don't have that access to that mentor i mean there's a ton of resources out there again be proficient with your weapon your your outdoor skills need to be you know map and compass skills you're 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 combining everything from camping to expedition to self you know, retrieval kind of stuff. You, you're going in places and situations where there isn't other people, right? That's where the game is. So, you know, having some of those wilderness survival skills, having some first aid under your belt, that's, those are all great tools. Um, but yep. Buck Tilton said it best, the best tool you can pack with you is your mind, right? Is knowledge and information. And there's been a couple times, like, and you mentioned on a, on a fishing trip or on a climbing trip or even on a mountain bike trip, you kind of have a schedule, an itinerary. Hey, we're going to be here at this time and we need to move to this elk hunting. It might be 
I just shot one right at dark and I was going to hike out and go to bed (laughs) in a nice, warm, dry, safe place. But you know what? Logistically, it makes sense to do B instead of A. And so sometimes, sometimes I've hiked till five in the morning with meat on my back. Sometimes it's, Hey, we're going to sleep right here in a cave and we'll get up in the daylight and deal with this. A couple times we've attempted to do some meat recovery. We got a little bit off not even the beaten path. We just thought we were going down this drainage. We we didn't really get turned around, but the blowdown and the, the terrain got a lot thicker, and we weren't on trails trying to get down to the main horse trail. And too much weight, so we abandoned all the meat. We hung it high in, I mean, we didn't abandon it permanently. We unloaded all the meat from our packs, and we hung it really high in a tree at 1 o'clock in the morning so that we could safely get down to the pack trail. We didn't have enough stuff to stay out and we were maybe an hour hour and a half hike to the vehicle so i was like hey we'll just we'll be out by three we'll come back in the morning with the horses so you need to be able to be flexible and i would say in hunting especially the buddy system is there's nothing it's a sport kind of like fly fishing where it's it's more of a solo sport It, it it's can be enjoyed with a partner but also can be really cool solo there's a danger with that solo is you you need to have your skills you know up don't just grab a gun grab a tag and go wander off people get lost and and (laughs) freeze to death and die every year and and again there's the safety factor of you're putting several hundred pounds of meat on the ground in predator country so yeah (laughs) you know that's definitely having a kill kit and you know really quickly a kill kit you know rubber gloves some game bags some paracord at least 100 feet, if not 200 feet. Um, I've actually started going to 330 cord instead of 550 cord because I can package a little more cordage for the same weight. Now, the problem with the 330 cord when I put an elk quarter over a, I like to find a blowdown tree that's gone against, because most of the time where I'm harvesting these elk, <laughs> you know, we, we, we pretty much, to keep it away from the bears, we have to hang it and go back and get horses. It's five to seven miles. Yeah, you could spend a couple days backpacking it, or you could go to town and get a couple buddies, but and, until you put 75 pounds of elk quarter in a backpack and start walking, you you know, you really, until you've done that, the logistics, it's hard. But having that kill kit, you know, some game bags to keep the meat clean, a sharp knife with an extra blade, maybe a way to sharpen that knife. Gloves are nice, something to wipe up with cleanup, and watch a few YouTube videos of how to field process an animal you know that's one thing i've heard several times when i've helped other guys from local butchers is they're just very appreciative how clean the meat is and i'm blown away with that every time like so other guys are not bringing it into this level and it's especially with the buddy system and if you look up a a quick quarter method if one guy's holding the bag open and the other guy's lifting the quarter as you're removing it from the carcass you can just slip that bag around that meat it's about as clean as if you were to take it to the butcher and harvest it. You take that same quarter and you just set it on the ground before putting it in the bag. You now have dirt and rocks and pine cones and leaves. And yes, it can be cleaned up, but it's a, it's going to cost you more at the butcher. It's going to cost you more waste. So you lose elk meat, right? If you're doing it at home, it's going to cost you more time. So it's, it's not that hard to take an extra 20, 30 minutes at the carcass. And yeah, it's a little intimidating the first first one or two or even five you're like okay how do i you know there you could make a mess of it so i would recommend watching a few videos and but at kill kit the boots the binoculars and definitely be proficient with your weapon practice yep 
and get that meat cool as quick as you can. That's, that's a big deal, especially cause you want to eat it. I mean, that's why you're going. And so, uh, the meat care is a huge deal. Um, but you know, you were, you were talking about wanting to have the elk meat in the freezer. And I, I think that's, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's one thing that I'm noticing across the industry. And we talked about it is there are more people wanting to get into hunting because they want the organic good protein and, and it's as high quality as you're ever going to find anywhere. I mean, elk meat is right up there. Antelope meat's way up there. I mean, you can't really find anything better <laughs> as far as lean protein. So I think that's really cool that you're getting into that and that's exciting. And we're seeing more in the hunting world and in the fishing world of people that have that idea of, all right, I want to get some good protein and I want to procure it myself because then I know where it comes from. Because like when you go to the store and you buy salmon, good chance it's farm-raised and it's probably not going to be very good for you. It's dyed. It's nasty is the best way I can describe it. You know, it's it's not like catching it yourself out of the Kenai. So, you know, going and getting, you know, elk, I, I, I commend you on that. I think that's great. And I, I hope maybe you'll be somebody who can mentor somebody else in a few years and say, hey, I got into this and, you know, these are the benefits and see where it goes. Yeah. I mean, there's, there is home raised pork in my freezer. We have a little bit of chicken. There may be halibut, but don't go looking. <laughs> there's definitely some salmon, but there's always elk meat, right? And I, we don't buy beef at my house because between, I mean, my wife and I, we do pretty good at putting at least, at least a bowl on the ground for season tag, right? And that's a little harder task than, say, a cow elk hunt. That would be if, if somebody was, to ask me, Hey, how do I get into this? I would say cow elk tags are a, you know, it's a little colder weather, a little different logistics, but the elk usually move out of the deep wilderness and kind of out more in the BLM, more foothills or in the open, a little, little easier access a little later in the year. Right. So that's, that's obviously one, one Avenue. But if, if a guy wants to do a bull elk hunt, yeah, go, go for it. Just start out with, Hey, I, you may not get one your first year and you're going to learn some things, but definitely I would say the the biggest one is all ungulates are adherent to pressure, right? So as they, as you get more increased foot traffic, human traffic, wolf traffic, whatever, they, they respond to that pressure and they're going to go where that pressure isn't. And so you have to kind of find those in between zones because and I, I fell into this trap a long time ago. Was, hey, I'm just going to go 20 miles deep in the wilderness and there'll be nobody there. Well, <laughs> there's five other horse camps sitting there and there's sometimes more people in that 12 mile in meadow than if you'd stayed a mile from the truck. But if you don't get, if you're, if you're scared to get more than 250 yards from the truck or you want to shoot one from the truck, that's, I'm sorry, there's been 10 other side-by-sides. And that's that's another, you know, competing interest now is mm. I've seen the, the increase of ATVs, UTVs. And I don't, I'm not opposed to them. I'm still, I told you I'm a horse guy. So I like my horses and I like to, for me, when I'm going, you know, and, and maybe like fly fishing a lake, you don't want to have 12 other guys fishing that lake. If you're going to the Kenai and you're signing up and you're knowing that, hey, there's going to be combat fishing, that's one thing. As an elk hunter, if I see another pair of boots and then, in the fresh mud in the trail in front of me, I quickly div- diverge and go up a different trail. So there you go. You got a whole bunch of advice all at one time. Yeah. Thanks. Y'all. But it's recorded. So you can go back and listen to it if you wanted to. Yeah. 
Sounds good. So besides elk hunting, what, what, what else is on the horizon for you? Any new interests or things that you want to get into? Mm, maybe antelope as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like there's great places to do that close to home too. And um, so, yeah. so properly cared for, I'll tell you, it's the best. Really? Like it's, I, I don't There's know. some listener out there shaking their head and screaming <laughs> oh, right now, but I, we've harvested dozens of antelope and I've had one that is, and I have a theory that lactic acid built up in the animal, you know, if you don't have a super clean harvest can taint the meat. There is, there is a, you know, proof that a, a rutted up buck is, is going to be a little gamier, a little more tougher. But I'll tell you, a doe off one of these alfalfa fields and all these farmers around here will love if you would remove a doe antelope off their alfalfa field. Yep. Uh, you, all are, you are harvesting a 90-pound animal instead of a 1,000-pound elk. And usually when you're harvesting an elk, it's somewhat cold, might be even be snowing. Most of the time when you harvest an antelope, it's going to be you know almost triple digits. So getting the skin off, getting it processed, getting it on ice less than an hour will completely change you know and just like when you're baking bread right yeah i want that fresh nice good bread i don't want somebody's bread they left in the closet for three weeks yeah yeah if you want to get really good protein i would say definitely put in for that um doe tag find a hunt you know a, a ranch that wants people to come and hunt and get them off out from under a pivot you know on alfalfa and you get that Take a cooler of ice, shoot one, get it processed right away, get get the meat on the ice, get it home, get it processed. I mean, you're going to love it. It's super, super delicious. Great. When, when you're practicing with that weapon, whatever it is, practice like you're going to be in the field, right? I shoot off of a backpack a lot, so when I come at home here on the ranges, I don't set up on the table with the nice lead sled and, you know, be pretty comfortable when I'm shooting. I throw the backpack on the ground, throw a tarp on the ground and shoot from that position because I want to know how I perform, not how the the firearm performs. Now you need to start with a a firearm that's been calibrated, zero sighted in. Um, The other one is the tool you're really going to need is a rangefinder. It's very hard to tell 275 versus 345 yards Mm -hmm. just looking at it, especially when you're in the heat of the moment. Maybe you got a little rise in the middle of the field and I'll tell you, if if you're aiming at 250 and it's 350, you're not going to hit the target. I just got one yesterday. Perfect. Awesome. See, you're on the right path. <laughs> well, Jake, uh, just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, and again, tell everybody how they can get a hold of your bread, if, especially if they live in the Lander area. Yeah, landerbread.com. Landerbread.com. Man, that's really easy. And it's called the Lander Bread Share. That's right. right. Yeah. They can All pick right. it up. They can get it dropped off. They can have a subscription or they can try it once. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to some bread the next time I'm in Lander. Yeah, sourdough bread is one of my favorites anyway, so I'm sure that's amazing. So, And if somebody wanted to reach out and pick your brain about climbing or Knowles or do you have a social media account or somewhere they can get a hold of you? Yeah, I have a I have an Instagram for the Lander Bread Share uh, that I check pretty often. So Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely get a hold of Jake and... Hopefully, 
we'll uh, be able to talk to you again after you harvest something. I think it'd be fun to have you on and talk about that. Yeah, it, maybe great. maybe we can find a spot where we'll rappel off a, a a head wall and a cliff down into a basin that's really hard to get into. Sounds good. We'll go. We'll go <laughs> kill some big stuff. Let me know when you get a sheep tag, and I. That's one thing I do really. Sheep hunting is. I don't know. Once it gets in your blood, it's it's that mountain goat. It's that next level of adrenaline rush, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. Well, awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks you all. Mm-hmm.